I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. We've got a great show today, starting off with Wish. Uh, Wish is an IPO that from day one, actually even before the IPO hit, uh, we were skeptical of. And now Wish, not a wish you would have wanted to make. Let's... Put it that way. We're going to dig into what's going on with that stock and um, <laughs> why you should probably s- continue to stay away from that stock. Fair. We're going to talk about Fair, our number one B two B marketplace in our in our ranking of the top fifty B two B marketplaces. Just had a monster fundraise, four hundred million dollar fundraise. We're going to jump into that. Vertical labor marketplaces. Talk a lot about supply chain woes. Um, you know, gig economy. We're going to look a little bit at. What I mean by vertical labor marketplaces, what are some of the biggest ones in the space, and, and what's going on with that? Lastly, we'll just round it out with the, the like regular economic update I've been doing on the show, which tends to unfortunately not end the show on a positive note. I apologize. I really can't do anything about it. But now we have a trillion dollar uh, bill, was, which was just signed, which which counteracts the slowing of QE, which the Fed had just announced that they're going to try and slow QE. And so we're going to dig into why that is and, and you know, what impact does that have, um, the lack of slowing of QE. And what is QE? If you don't know what QE is, we're definitely going to touch on that. Let's kick it off with Wish. Since going public has crashed 74%. Since going public uh, last December of 2020, and now the CEO is transitioning. So they started out, and I have the transcript of their quarterly earnings call. And so you start out the call. You can see here the transcript, and you know you can see the participants on the transcript, and you're reading through it. Executive chair. Two interim CFOs and then a new CFO. Like, what? Excuse me? The the chief product officer and the chief technology officer are also brand new to the company. So is clearly this CFO. But there's no CEO on the call. And that is because right before the earnings call, they said, yeah, here are our earnings. Our earnings are absolute trash. Our monthly active users are down 40%. Down. 40%. Yes, that's correct. And our CEO and founder, by the way, founder and CEO is resigning and stepping down. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, <laughs> their revenue is down 39%. Ooh. And basically for the upcoming quarter, they basically didn't give guidance and said it's going to be worse, right? That, that revenue is going to be down a good case scenario would be for revenue to be down 39%. They said, we actually can't give guidance, but we don't think it's going to be any better, which means it's going to be worse than this current quarter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was this earnings call. So let's just go in the way back time machine. Let's look at a couple of videos we did on Wish. So here, this was one of the first videos we put out. This was September, 2020. Wow. Time flies. September, 2020 in the now very distant Connecticut studio. Why I'm staying away from the Wish IPO. That was earlier, right? And then, you know, they went public. This was now November 
24, 2020. This one got much, much more views. And I really clobbered them in this. I said, uh, wish IPO, something's fishy. They are classifying this logistics and fulfillment revenue as revenue. They're kind of conflating the take rate that they get from the marketplace with logistics revenue, this kind of bundled service offering. It was very bizarre to me. And, and to me, I, th- I saw it as a way for them to inflate their revenue numbers you know, trying to just be able to point to a much bigger revenue number than they should be able to point to. Why they were considering it logistics revenue, I don't know. It just, I still disagree with the conceptual approach behind it. And um, again, it felt like the company was grasping for straws. I never liked the positioning, you know, this stuff, and we'll go into the their earnings release. But what Wish is, if you don't know what Wish is, it's a marketplace with 97% of their sellers are basically just Chinese factories. They're just selling you crap. It's crap. It's just crap. It's like you buy stuff for five bucks, a dollar, 10 bucks, you know, an iPhone case for a, a dollar, right? It's just junk coming directly from these Chinese factories, just producing junk, shipping it across the ocean. And that's the model. Um, which I was very skeptical of for a variety, a variety of reasons, definitely one of which was including the, the, the Chinese exposure risk. I mean, that was before now all the supply chain stuff, which, which they actually weirdly management in the earnings called downplay the supply chain issues. Also very weird. So anyway, let's, let's look at some of the excerpts from their um, transcript here. The founder is stepping down. He made a personal decision that now is the right time to step away from the business. Yeah, because the business is crap. I mean, the guy made a lot of money for himself, but this is not a business you'd want to invest in. Okay, here it is. Two key pillars of our strategy to return to growth are as follows. Increase user confidence in our marketplace and to provide a more differentiated and engaging user experience. What do they mean by increased user confidence in our marketplace? So it makes sense once you understand the context, but they, 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 they go deeper into it here. Here, we announced a new program for our merchants called Wish Standards, which is designed to reward merchants that consistently provide an exceptional user experience. And you're like, user experience? What does that mean? How would the merchant have anything to do with user experience? And then it comes out. While we evaluate merchants across performance metrics, we provide the highest performing merchants with priority placements. Basically, the thing is this word right here. We evaluate merchants across performance metrics such as product quality. And then, and then she lists a bunch of other things, which are not the real thing. The real thing is product quality, which is they want to get higher quality merchants. We've also increased our efforts to proactively prevent, detect, and remove misleading, fraudulent, or poorly reviewed and low quality product listings from the prep. It's just a bunch of crap. That's what this thing is. Crap in, crap out, direct from the Chinese factory, super cheap stuff. It's junk. And the users are now have figured it out and their churn is is through the roof and now they're rolling out standards and quality programs because oh surprise surprise this is just a bunch of junk and our repeat user repeat order numbers are probably abysmal 
Um, and then the second point is we're we're making progress in reinventing our shopping experience to make it more encouraging and entertaining and easier, run on sentence, for our users to purchase products they love. We're experimenting with live video, and we just did a deal with Klarna. This is like hilarious. Wish users in the U.S. had the flexibility to spread the cost of their purchases over four interest repayments. Why do you need Klarna when you're buying a $5 iPhone case? Really? This is the magical experience this management team has cooked up to reignite growth? What a joke. What a joke. I mean, it's laughable. I mean, it just goes on and on, just grasping for straws. This thing, it's going to keep going down. What is the current valuation of this? Oh, my. Oh, my. Look at this. This thing is still a $3 billion company. $3 billion company. Are you kidding me? This company is worth $3 billion. This thing should go way down. It's nowhere near the bottom. This thing is still high. They're hemorrhaging money. This is the weirdest part. Despite global supply chain shocks during the quarter, we were able to reduce our delivery times and improve our on-time rate. And it does, just also doesn't make any sense. The stuff is coming from China. You can't get stuff into the docks. But they're reducing their delivery times? It's just so many things about this thing just don't make any sense. What a boondoggle. You know, at least they're not committing securities fraud uh, well, you know, based on your interpretation of logistics revenue, um, that's still up for interpretation, in my opinion. But at least they're not as like bad as a Luckin Coffee or um, some of the uh the the Chinese tutoring platform, which we covered on the last episode, which is deliberately defrauding investors. Um, and, and management selling all their shares without everyone knowing, anyone knowing. So um, I guess that's a very low bar to compare them to, but still, no way this thing is worth over $3 billion. Not a chance. So next topic is our number one B2B marketplace is FAIR. FAIR with an E has just announced they've raised $400 million in funding at over a $12 billion valuation. Wow. Great job for these for these folks. You know, a lot of B2B marketplaces focus just on one vertical. Fair instead is focused on home decor, bath products, beauty products, jewelry, uh, kids products, like all over the spectrum. We've talked a lot about their model with net 60 payment terms. That's why they're able to have a take rate on their GMV which is why their valuation is so high. I've done videos on this before. If you want to go look it up, I've interviewed the co-founder. We published an article interviewing the co-founder, which we, which we uh, published earlier this year, you know, a deep dive into their model and, and how they've been able to command all this. But FAIR now has 300,000 retailers across North America and Europe, as well as 40,000 brands from over 80 countries on this platform. We are on track to do over a billion dollars in GMV this year. So that's low compared to their valuation. 
$12 billion valuation over a billion dollars. I mean, if it was four or five billion dollars, you'd think they would they wouldn't say over a billion dollars, right? But even if it's sub two billion dollars and they've got a, you know, call it an eight X GMV multiple, that's extremely high, like very, very high. And it's attributed to the strength of their core transact on uh, their core transaction. Obviously, they have huge growth, but they have very nice margins. They're taking a nice take rate and they're able to do that because a big part of that is the net 60 payment terms, but it's now the other value added services and, and guarantees and flexibility that they provide to retailers. It's really an awesome model. It's why they were our number one. There's many other B2B marketplaces in our top, even in our top 10 ranking that are doing way more GMV than fair. But they were not the number one on our list because we were looking at the overall business model, the overall strength of the business model, the core transaction, the monetization, the stickiness, the ability to grow. And this is a great example why. I mean, this is now, you look at that ratio of GMV to valuation ratio, it's probably the strongest multiple, GMV multiple out of any B2B marketplace. And, and for exactly these reasons, uh, it's, this is a very impressive fundraise. Really something that I think is a testament to the model, the strength of the team, and clearly a whole boatload of growth, which is, uh, which is great. Great to see. Okay. So vertical labor m- marketplaces. I talk a lot about, you know, we have supply chain woes, the rise of the gig economy. So there's a couple good articles that have been written by different VC firms about, you know, what are vertical labor marketplaces? What's the next, next iteration of, of labor marketplaces? Just think about these as like specialized labor marketplaces to perform a certain type of job and certain type of labor. That could be in a specific industry like RigUp, which has now changed its name. I talk a lot about this company, RigUp. Now it's known as WorkRise. Changed its name actually earlier this year. And, and they raised another $300 million and now have roughly a $3 billion valuation. I'd say WorkRise, formerly known as RigUp, is definitely the vertical specific labor marketplace that has raised the most amount of capital and has the biggest valuation. The majority of WorkRise's business was in having labor for oil rigs, right? So very specific, very specific types of labor, very specific kinds of vetting and certifications and travel and all these kinds of things, right? It's a very specialized workflow for that labor, but a huge market, right? Very important part of the labor pool. So you're basically finding things that are vertical. I'd say that's vertical specific around not just within oil and energy, but specifically on oil rigs. And then they can also then do on land oil rigs, you know, at sea and all these other things. They've changed their name to WorkRise because they're going into other adjacent, guess what, verticals and industries. So they want to be able to have um, a more fitting name. And so other examples would be maybe not a specific industry, but you have labor marketplaces focused on certain kinds of jobs. So for example, warehouse jobs, right? You could have, you have warehouses across a variety of different verticals and industries, but you know, the function of what you're doing in the warehouse 
is very similar with slight differences, but very similar across those different verticals. The big thing for these gig economy things was that you were matching, you know, a consumer with a ride, a consumer with a food delivery, right? You were, you were, you were really decompartmentalizing the task of labor at to the task level, right? As opposed to these vertical specific labor marketplaces aren't saying, oh, well, you know, I'm going to hire you to go and do this specific pick and pack job uh, in the warehouse, right? I mean, you're not, it's not down to the task level. I think that was probably the big difference between what we saw with the early days of the gig economy. I, w- I would still all view this as bucketed as under the, the meta gig economy banner. And I think what you're seeing with a lot of these labor marketplaces are that they are giving more power and more flexibility to the worker, especially with the issues, labor issues that are plaguing full-time employment. I think you've seen a bunch of employees uh, say, you know, I could do similar work, but I could do this make my own schedule, do this remotely, do this here or there, make the same amount of money or maybe more and work less hours. And so I think, you know, the the construct of full-time employment is really the thing that has come under pressure because of COVID, but now because of all the rules that are being put on uh, full-time employees, which contractors don't really have the same level of pressure as companies with full-time employees. So for a variety of reasons, I'm very bullish on these labor marketplaces. This is a better graph from from Network Effects. Up and to the right, there's your rig up now, uh, work rise. I think you're going to see more to come. I think you're going to see a lot more innovation in the space, a lot more of your traditional recruiting and staffing firms. Now look at how you can basically you know, that's the thing that these vertical specific marketplaces have done is they've, they've, they've automated and made a lot of the vetting much more streamlined and efficient. And they've built technology to rip out a lot of the overhead, both that takes up time, but also money because you've got humans doing it. So now how can you build in uh, testing and credentializing and certifications and all this other stuff? And now you can build a work history of these laborers and workers across a variety of different jobs that they're working on. And now they can really build that profile, right? They can kind of build that resume on the platform, which is a very cool thing, which then kind of gives them that credibility to go from one company to another company or one job to another job, but then, you know, carry that reputation forward and have the platform really help credentialize the individual. So there's a lot of really cool things that I think you're seeing with these vertical specific marketplaces, I think they're only going to keep on going up and to the right for the most part. And if you're a traditional staffing firm, yeah, it's it's time to really lean in and and make a play because um, that's a direct threat, a direct threat. So, last topic is passage of the trillion dollars. Yes, a trillion dollars. How much is a trillion dollars? It's a lot of money. A trillion dollar infrastructure plan. It's a thousand billion dollars. Okay. It's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of money. 
we have close to, I think, a $30 trillion deficit at some point. I mean, why even bother tracking it anymore? Um, now, here's, here's the rub. Just in the past week or so, the Fed announced that they are printing $120 billion. They're adding $120 billion of money into the money supply every month. That's called quantitative easing, QE. It's basically one of the two major levers that the Fed has to spur growth in the economy or restrict growth. And by printing and putting more money into the money supply, you're absolutely spurring growth. You're making money more freely available and easier to get. The other level is lever is interest rates. But so the Fed said, okay, we're not going to go to QT tightening, which means they take money out of the money supply. But all they said was, we're going to slow it down to nothing to be neutral. We're not going to add money or take away money by June of next year. So it's roughly 15 billion a month, right? So 120 billion is printed this month. 105 billion is printed the month after, 90 billion is printed the month after, and it basically goes down to zero by the end of June of 2022. Now, here's the rub. How do you continue to lower your QE uh, expenditure or you know, printing of money when you now have the federal government, which is passing a trillion dollar uh, infrastructure plan. And it, usually you would say, oh, well, those things are not, are not related. The Federal Reserve has no obligation to buy um, debt from the federal government. But that all changed in the past year and a half with COVID. Okay, here's the chart. Now, this is from uh, July. This is from July of 2021. So you see the red line? The red line's like, 500 billion, um, yeah, 500 billion, just a, a drop in the bucket. Going back to 08, 09, then it kind of went up a little bit. Then it hit uh, two, two and a half trillion in the, in the teens, right? In the 2014, 15, 16, then it stayed the same. Then they start to take it down um, starting in 17, 18, going down kind of a little bit below 2 trillion of holdings. And then boom, 2020, bam, spikes up. 21 keeps going up to now over $4.5 trillion as of July of 2021. Usually this doesn't need to happen. The federal, federal, government, federal government says we want to lend money or we want to borrow money and then um, banks and other institutions and you know other foreign governments um, buy that debt backstopped by the united states government right impeccable credit but now the fed reserve has had to step in to fill the gap because we have printed and as, as a country, as a federal government of the United States, we have issued so much debt, and we keep doing it, that there aren't enough other people and institutions and governments to buy the debt. The Federal Reserve has the best app ever made, and that's called the Print Money app. They push a button, 
and then a bunch of zeros appear. However many zeros they want, it just appears. It's magic. The Federal Reserve has that power. <laughs> and they're completely unregulated by the federal government. No elected officials. Um, so anyway, they are backstopping our federal government's deficit. And so now the Federal Reserve is in between a rock and a hard place, which they're saying, hey, we would like to slow the amount of money we're printing and adding to the money supply. And then the federal government's saying, yeah, great. So I'm going to just do another trillion here, maybe another trillion there, right? There's probably more money coming, more, more bills, uh, another trillion there. And the Federal Reserve is going to have to fill that gap. Very hard to stop doing QE when the federal government's forcing your hand. And that is a recipe for, for, it's a recipe for kicking the can down the road. Everyone knows this is not sustainable, but you're kicking the can down the road, letting the good times ride. We're printing money, printing money. And don't worry about inflation. That was our last episode. And eventually the music's gonna stop and it's gonna be really ugly. Uh, but this is a great example where the Fed was trying to do something and now it's completely counteracted. So, um, again, unfortunately, yeah, it doesn't seem like good news, but it is good in the sense that a lot of people are waking up to these issues and they will be rectified. It'll be painful to rectify, but it will bring about really good change in this country and change that's really badly needed. It's going to be painful to get there, but the change will be good at the end of the day. It's just going to take a long time to get there. And we probably wouldn't get there otherwise. So, you know, that's kind of, uh, I guess, the best way you can look at it. That's it for us today in Winner Take All. Hope you enjoyed our episode today. I will talk to you soon.